Hi, my name is Kay. The Old Testament reading is found in Amos 1, verse 1, and chapter 7, uh, 14 and 15. These are the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. He perceived these things concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, in the days of Judah's king Uzziah, and in the days of Israel's king Jeroboam, Joash's son. Amos answered Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I a prophet's son, but I am a shepherd and a trimmer of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from shepherding the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel the word of the Lord. And the New Testament is found in Galatians 2, 8 through 10. The one who empowered Peter to become an apostle to the circumcised empowered me also to be one to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, who were considered to be key leaders, shook hands with me and Barnabas as equals when they recognized the grace that was given to me. So it was agreed that we would go to the Gentiles while they continued to go to the people who were circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which was certainly something I was willing to do. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the reading of the gospel, which is found in Luke 19, 5 through 9. When Jesus came to that spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay in your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. Everyone who saw this grumbled, saying, He's gone to to be a guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this household, because he too is a son of Abraham. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for gathering us together in your name, for adopting us as your children, for speaking to us through your word and by the Holy Spirit. And we pray today that you would continue to speak to us, and more importantly, you would help us to hear. We know that you are the God who speaks, and here we are, your servants, your children, here to hear from you. So would you give us ears today? Would you open our ears to hear your word? Would you open our minds to understand? And would you get down deep inside of us, looking to change us and transform us? into the image and likeness of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. Those of you who are here in the room and those of you who are online, we love you. We miss you. We can't wait for the day that we all get to be back together again. We are excited that this week is our last week at New Life North. So we have been here... Uh, as Glenn has said, in our parents' house for the last 10 months. 
uh, and unable to be downtown, the place that we feel called to be as a congregation. Palmer High School still is not open for rentals, but thankfully the Antlers Hotel is. So we will be next Sunday at 9 and 11 at the Antlers. We're going to be sending lots of information about parking and park, validating your parking ticket and not your parking ticket like from the, you know, the, the good kind of parking ticket, not the bad kind of parking ticket. Um, all of that kind of information is going to be coming out soon via the pastoral email or on our Facebook congregation group. So please be paying attention this week for all that information. And if you see anyone from our North congregation, please thank them. Isn't it great to have a place? When we get displaced, it's good to have a place to be able to come and worship. So we've been grateful uh, for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Over the last 10 months, our headlines have been filled by all kinds of things. There's not been a week that has gone by while, while the headlines haven't been sort of startling in some capacity. This past week, I was particularly struck by the number of headlines that had to do with economic issues that our country is facing, economic issues within our nation. There was a report that just came out that said that 2020 was the worst economic year since 1946 that our economy dropped by three and a half percent. Worst drop since that time period. In the midst of that drop, there were eight million Americans who joined the ranks of the poor. The eight million Americans lost job or lost income to, a cert- to enough a degree that they're now considered as people whose means push them below the poverty line in our country. Eight million Americans. Well, at the same time, 660 billionaires, the 660 billionaires in the United States, their net worth increased by $1.1 trillion dollars. Their net worth increased, their wealth increased by 40% in 2020. Not only that, but our headlines were captivated this week by everything going on with a small company's stock called GameStop. And all of this sort of conversation around this sort of battle between Wall Street hedge fund managers and this group of sort of amateur day traders known either as the Reddit mob or the Reddit army, depending upon who's talking about them. And all of the sort of op-ed pieces questioning what is legal and what is illegal in the middle of all of these things, which are incredibly important questions to ask. Because we live in an incredibly complex time. As we think about those kinds of headlines, I recognize that those are complex problems that do not have simple solutions to them. That there is a whole lot that goes on in the middle of all of those things. And we should be having questions about what is legal kind of with around these conversations. And yet I'm interested also as the people of God for us to go further than that. For us to have conversations about what does it mean for us as the people of God to live faithfully in the situation that we find ourselves in? What does it mean for us not only to consider what's legal, but what is ethical and what is right 
and what is good and what is loving and what is just and what is generous? What does it mean for us as the people of God to live our lives here now? Because I fully believe that God speaks to his people at every time and in every age, regardless of whatever economic system we find ourselves in. And he says to the people of God, no matter where you find yourself, these are the things that should be true about you. Because these are the things that are true about me. That no matter what is happening, there are certain ways that the people of God live because of who our Father is. And that we go further in our conversations to talking about what does it mean for us. Now, I recognize that there are all kinds of things to talk about on a national level, on a political level, on a global economic level, that there are all kinds of conversations that can be had. But for us this morning, what I want us to have a conversation about is what does the word of God say to us as people? What does it say to you and to me and how we live our individual lives within the setting that we find ourselves in? And how do we as a church, how do we collectively as the people of God live our lives within the setting that we find ourselves in? Because the word of God speaks to all Christians living at all times and in all systems. And thankfully today we get to dive into a book that addresses particularly economic concerns. We are in the fourth week of our series called Everyday Prophets, where we're walking through the most read portion of the Bible, the minor prophets. That, yeah, the nominative is like, no, that's not the most read, but they're incredibly important. The minor prophets, this group of people who are minor just because they wrote little as opposed to those who wrote much, speaking to us about life as the people of God. And today we're going to be opening to the book of Amos and a sermon entitled, Why We, Why We, the People of God, Shouldn't Prosper at Someone Else's Expense. Why We, the People of God, Shouldn't Prosper at Someone Else's Expense. Our Old Testament reading today, those three verses from Amos 1 and Amos 7, tell us just about everything that we know about Amos the individual. There's actually quite a bit more than we know about most of the minor prophets. That we're told several things in that opening verse and then in his little conversation with Amaziah the high priest at Bethel. And we find out in the middle of this that Amos is a shepherd and a tree farmer. And he goes beyond that and he says, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet, which means it's his way of saying, I didn't go to school for this, I haven't been trained for this, and I'm not getting paid for this. This is not my vocation. Instead, he is an everyday guy with his sleeves rolled up, working the land, living off the land, earning an honest wage and living a humble life. And then all of a sudden in the middle of that, God speaks. We find frequently that Amos says the Lord speaks to him or the Lord shows him something. Other prophets describe what Amos has experienced with the simple phrase, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. The actual original language says the word of the Lord was to someone. The word of the Lord happened to them. It's a way of describing a particular kind of experience. 
And there is a famous Jewish theologian named Abraham Joshua Heschel who said this about the prophetic experience. He said what the, what the prophet experiences is sympathy with the divine pathos. In other words, there's something about what happens to the prophet that allows the prophet to experience the very heart of God. That they're brought into sympathy with God's own emotions about what is happening in the world around them. Brought into sympathy with how God feels. And the truth is that we see for Amos and the other prophets is that the word of the Lord can come to anyone. The word of the Lord doesn't just come to the paid professionals. The word of the Lord doesn't just come to pastors and prophets and teachers and people that have titles within religious spheres. Instead, the word of the Lord comes to and loves to come to everyday folks, which is why we call this series Everyday Prophets, because the word of the Lord can come to anyone. And it came to Amos sometime in the 750s B.C., 750 or so years before Jesus in this small town south of Jerusalem as he's taking care of his trees and his sheep. At the time, Tekoa, the town he's from, is in the southern kingdom of Judah. At the time, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Amos is a southerner. He's from Alabama, and he's being called to the north to go and prophesy in New York or Ohio or some other place you can name your state from there. And in the north at the time, they were being led, they're being governed, they're being ruled by a king named Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. And under Jeroboam's rule, the northern kingdom of Israel was experiencing this extended time of peace and prosperity. And what had happened kind of on the international scale is that the great superpowers of the time period, Babylon and Egypt, had gone through this period of, de- of decline. Over in Mesopotamia, Assyria was starting to rise, kind of come to power as the new superpower on the block. But that temporarily benefited Israel because what happened is, is, is Assyria was kind of slowly expanding their empire. They actually weakened Damascus, Israel's northern foe. And with this, the Syrians being weakened by the Assyrians, what happened is that Jeroboam was able to take over more land. He was able to regain territory that Israel had lost, and he was able to secure up trade routes. And so what happened under his reign is they expanded territory and they took control of trade. All of a sudden, there was an economic boom that followed. Everything was flourishing under his rule. The trade was going off the charts. Cities were booming. Expansion was happening. Things were being built. There was peace and prosperity all around. Or at least it seemed like it. And then shows up Amos. And he starts to show us what's going on underneath the surface. And Amos says this, he said, the Lord roars from Zion. He shouts from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds wither and the top of Mount Carmel dries up. 
Amos steps onto the scene and the very first thing he says, he says, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is like a roaring lion. And we're like, yeah, we know that. We've read the Chronicles of Narnia. Thank you very much, Amos. But what he's trying to present for us is that the Lord comes to startle. That if you think about what happens to a prey, when that prey hears the lion's roar, startled, shocked. And that roar, if they listen, should cause a change of direction, a change of action. So we should expect that the word of God to Israel is going to do the same thing for them. It's going to sound like the roar of a lion. See, Yahweh has sent Amos to confront his people, not to comfort them. He sent him to confront them, not to comfort them. And as we open a book like this, we should actually, as the people of God, expect the same thing. That as we read a book like Amos, we should expect to be confronted, which is a little startling and a little uncomfortable for us. See, most of the time when we go to the scriptures, that we go to open the Bible, what we're hoping for as we read the text is that we will be inspired, you know, the sort of Philippians verse that we can put on our eyeliner before the Super Bowl, right? I can do all things. We're expected to be instructed in some way. Okay, what should I do in this situation? Tell me how I should live here. Or we're expected to be comforted in some way or, or given hope. Version, the most popular Bible app every year, releases a report of what the most read, most searched Bible verses every year. And in 2020, it came out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 41. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. How desperately did we need to hear that word in 2020? How desperately did we need to know that in the midst of everything that was going on, do not be afraid, for I am with you. The word of the Lord comes to comfort us. I remember a time in my life where things just seemed to be unraveling. All of the plans that I had so carefully crafted and put together in my timeline for I was going to do this and then there was going to be this and there was going to be this and it was all going to work out. Suddenly all came apart at the seams in a matter of a couple months. And I didn't know what to do. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was read the Bible really poorly and open and point. (laughs) And just say, Lord, speak. And my finger landed in Proverbs chapter three. This is trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding and he will make your paths straight. So desperately needed to hear that word of comfort. But the word of the Lord not only comes to comfort us, it also comes to confront us comes to confront us, comes to challenge us, comes to cause us to question and to wrestle and to see tension and to have to go, well, I don't know what to do with this. It comes to actually say, okay, this is what the Lord says, but this is what's going on in my life. Do these things match? And if they don't, to sort of say, okay, Lord, help me, guide me. What do I do in the midst of this situation? It is a dangerous place, my friends, when the Bible no longer confronts us. When the word of the Lord doesn't challenge us, when the word of the Lord doesn't speak hard things to us, 
when the word of the Lord doesn't sort of incise us down the middle and rend open our hearts and to call into question parts of our life that are not compatible with the character and the nature and the way and the will of God. It's a dangerous place when that no longer happens. So I can't do the Bible in the year kind of programs. Some of you may be able to get through the Bible in the year. I've never been able to get through the Bible in the year. And the problem for me is the Sermon on the Mount. Every time I read it, as in Enneagram 1, I come to this place where where Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, do not be angry. (laughs) Like, but I'm angry all the time. (laughs) And they stop. Say, okay, Lord, help me. What do I do with this? Where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, Lord, who are my enemies? Have I prayed for them this year? Who are the people that have hurt me? Can I forgive them? The Bible should stop us in our tracks and cause us to have to confront hard things. In the northern kingdom for Amos, what is it that God needs to confront? What does that actually cause the lion to roar? Amos is one of only two of the minor prophets that actually address the northern kingdom of Israel. The other minor prophet that talks to Israel is where we started this whole series at. It's Hosea. And Hosea comes on behalf of the Lord to confront Israel's idolatry, their worship of other gods. Amos, on the other hand, he comes, he mentions that, he confronts that, he confronts several things. But the primary focus of Amos' message to the northern kingdom of Israel, the primary thing that he comes to confront is their ethics. It's how they treat their neighbor, particularly how they treat the poor. This is the focus, this is the target of Amos' message is what's actually happening economically within the northern kingdom. See, under Jeroboam II, what happened in the midst of this time of peace and prosperity is that a sizable gap emerged between the rich and the poor. See, the peace and the prosperity did not affect everyone equally. But what happened is is the upper class, the wealthy, the elite, that they took advantage of this situation and they garnered more power and more resources and they used their power and their resources for personal gain. They began to sort of follow economic practices that oppressed the poor and then they used the power they had to deny them justice in the legal system of the day. They began to oppress the poor so the rich got richer and the poor got poorer and to make sure they used their incredible influence and power to tilt the justice system in their favor as well. So there was no recourse for the poor to be able to put an end to what was happening. So the rich got richer and it didn't trickle down. They prospered, but other people paid and the Lord roars on their behalf. The Lord roars on behalf of the poor and the orphan and the widow and the vulnerable and the marginalized and those who find themselves on the underside of power. See, as the people of God, our prosperity cannot come at the expense of others. God won't have it. Because it's actually the opposite of our call. That our call is for our prosperity to be for the benefit of others. We see this all the way back in Abraham. I will bless you and make you a 
blessing so that all of the families of the earth will be blessed in you. This is specifically what the Lord says through Amos, his initial accusation to them. says, the Lord proclaims for three crimes of Israel and for four, I won't hold back the punishment because they have sold the innocent for silver and those in need for a pair of sandals. What this is saying here is that what would happen is that the rich would find the poor in their vulnerable state and for minuscule debts, they would take advantage of the opportunity and force them into economic slavery. They would force them to become debt slaves to others over minuscule things like a pair of sandals. It goes on, it says, they crush the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. This is talking about what's happening in the city gates, the place where justice was supposed to take place, that the poor would be pushed aside. They would be denied justice. They would be denied a fair and speedy trial. They would be deprived of their dignity and those of status would have their say and others would be silenced. It goes on in verse eight and says, they stretch out beside every altar on garments. The word here is cloaks, taken in loan. And in the house of their God, they drink wine bought with fines that they imposed. See, they not only are mistreating people, but they're flaunting it. See, what happened in ancient Israel at the time is if someone needed to borrow money from someone, they would need to leave some item, some possession as collateral for them. Well, if you ended up in a place of economic vulnerability, you ended up poor, the last possession that you would have is your cloak. Because your cloak doubled as your blanket at night. And so the Torah, Exodus and Deuteronomy, tell those who are lenders to return the cloaks of the poor at night. Even if they haven't been able to repay what it is that they've borrowed, that their cloaks should go back to them at night so they have something to sleep on and to stay warm. But instead of giving back the cloaks, they slept on them themselves and said, thank you very much. I needed another one of those. And not only that, what would happen in Israel's system is if someone harmed another person or harmed that person's property, a fine would be imposed and that would be collected within the legal system. And the idea was, is that those who were uh, elders in the community, those who were managing and overseeing the legal system, they would collect those fines and then they would take and distribute them to those who had been victimized, to those who had lost. But instead, what was happening is, thank you very much for the fine. We're going to go and buy some alcohol. They would go and buy wine with it. And then they would sleep and they would drink. And did you notice where they were doing all of that? Next to the altar in the house of their God. Flaunting their mistreatment of other people. And they're doing so in their very places of worship. They were separating worship and ethics, and the Lord will have none of it. See, we cannot separate loving God from loving people. We cannot separate the two of them. To rightly worship God is to do for others what he's done for us. 
To love God is to love people. To worship God is then to then live an ethical life. To do for others what he's done for us. This is actually what makes Israel's situation so egregious. He goes on right after this and he says, don't you remember Yet I, this is what I did for you. I destroyed the Amorites before you, before them, whose height was as tall as the cedar trees and whose strength was as strong as oak trees. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. Also, I brought you out of the land of Egypt and I led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up some of your kids to be prophets and some of your youth to be Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? Isn't this how I treated you? Don't you remember? You were oppressed. You were poor. You were denied justice. You were enslaved. You cried out in the middle of that. And I rescued you. And I led you. And I provided for you. And I gave you this land. I cared for you. And I protected you when you were poor and orphaned and widowed and an immigrant and enslaved and in prison. And because I did all of this for you, when you found yourself in that state, then therefore I commanded you, care for and protect the poor and the orphan and the widow and the marginalized and the vulnerable and those on the underside of power. Do for others what it is that I did for you. And Israel instead did the opposite. They exploited those who were vulnerable. See, friends, generosity and justice are actually signs of God's salvation. They are not sort of separate issues disconnected from the gospel. They're not means of our salvation. They're not the things that we do in order to get saved, but they are the clear sign of Jesus' work at, Jesus at work in the life of the church. All throughout the scriptures, generosity and justice are a litmus test for the fidelity and the faithfulness of the people of God. That our faithfulness to God is manifest in how it is that we use the resources that he has given us. This is most clearly probably seen in the story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of Jericho. If you know anything about tax collectors at the time of Jesus and the Gospels, tax collectors were sort of like middlemen between the Roman Empire and the average, average everyday citizen. And what they would do is that the Roman Empire would, they would go and they would contract with the Roman Empire to collect this much money. And this is how much we can collect on your behalf. You can imagine the Roman Empire is going to go with whoever the highest collector is, right? So you get the job by saying, I'm going to collect this much for you. But then from there, if you collect more than that, guess what happens to all the excess? You get to keep it. You don't even have to tell the Roman Empire about it. So they stand in the middle between people and the empire. They win their job by saying, this is how much I can take from others. And they make their money and their wealth by collecting over and over and over and over and over that. No wonder they were so hated. No wonder they were so despised. And Zacchaeus is the chief among them who's made his living 
doing this, by collecting more than was required, collecting more than was needed. He gained at others' expense. And then guess what happens? Jesus shows up, right? And this is the part of the story we all know. Zacchaeus was a little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. I can't sing, but sorry, you guys had to endure that. You know what part of that story is missing? It's a great little tune, right? But there's a huge part of the story that's missing. It's the whole thing that Zacchaeus says when he comes down off that tree. He comes down from the tree and he says this, Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. Jesus shows up in this tax collector's life and his whole life changes. Not just his Sundays, not just his 30 minutes when he gets out of bed in the morning, not just a sliver of his life, but his whole life changes. And what happens is his first response to the grace and the generosity and the invitation and the presence of Jesus, his first response to Jesus inviting himself into Zacchaeus' life, his first response is to give generously to the poor and to make restitution in order to establish justice for those that he has wronged. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this household. See, generosity and justice are signs that we've been rescued and redeemed. They're signs that God's salvation has shown up in our life. They're signs that the Spirit is at work. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us living in the Western world in 2021? What does it mean for us in the midst of all that we are facing in this world? What does it mean as we navigate all of the different questions and things? As I said earlier, I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm not an economist. I don't understand all the nuances that go into trying to figure out how to navigate these things in a global economy. But I do passionately believe that the word of God speaks to us as individuals and as a community in whatever situation we find ourselves in. And so I think the first thing that Amos invites us, the Lord invites us through Amos, is to ask, the, ask for the word of the Lord to come to us. This should be the first thing. That we ask for the word of the Lord to come to us. See, if the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. And the prophet is then brought into sympathy with the divine pathos. Given the very heart of God, they're able to experience the very emotions of God. 
that we ask the Lord to come to us, that we might experience his compassion for the poor. That we might experience his compassion, his care, his concern, his desire to protect those in our neighborhoods, those in our city, those in our county, those who are close to us, those that we can be in relationship with, that he might cause us to feel compassion for those who find themselves vulnerable. That we would see them not as problems to be solved, projects to be fixed, but people, people made in the image of God, people just like us who are in desperate need of grace, people who are just like us who have incredible gifts to be able to give, people made in the image of God, people worthy of love and compassion and dignity that we might be called alongside of them then the same way that the word of the Lord became flesh and came to us, that the word of the Lord might come inside of us into our flesh, that we might come alongside them. And the second thing I think it means is that we let the word of the Lord confront us. Not only comfort us, but to confront us. And to particularly confront us in this area, which is oftentimes so hard for us. To confront us and to be able to say, All right, Lord, this is how I make my living. Does this look like you? Does this look like your character? The things that I put my hand to, the way that I generate my wealth, does this align with your character, with your plans, with your purposes, with your will? Is this you? And then to come before the Lord with our consumption, with what we do, with the wealth that he's entrusted to us. And we say, Lord, does this look like you? Lord, are you in this? Is the way that I consume the things that my hands have produced, am I grateful? Am I consuming too much? Am I consuming too little? What am I doing with what it is that you've entrusted to me? We set before the Lord our savings and our investments. And we say, Lord, is this wise? Is this the kind of thing that is wise given all of the situations and scenarios that we have to kind of navigate in this life? Or am I using this wisely? Am I using this justly? Or has this become hoarding? Has this become me building bigger barns for myself? Then we come to our giving. And we say, Lord, is, does this reflect you? Does this reflect your generosity? Not whether or not does it meet a percentage that we find somewhere in a passage somewhere. But does this reflect you? Does this show, does this put on display the character and nature of God? Does this put me in the stream of God's generosity that I might find my blessing becoming a blessing to other people? We let the word of the Lord confront us in every area of our life, not just in part of it. And then in all of those areas and in every area, we let the word of the Lord guide us. See, friends, we are not guided simply by what is legal, but by what is loving. 
We are not governed by what our rights are, but by what is rights. We're the kind of people that don't make decisions based off of parties and platforms and prosperity only, but we make our, con- our decisions based off the person of Jesus. This is the one that we follow in every aspect of our life, and we invite the word of the Lord to guide us. And lastly, we do what we do every Sunday. We let the word of the Lord remind us. We remember. We remember that we too were poor, that we too were vulnerable, that we too were in need, that we too were enslaved, that we too found ourselves disempowered, that we too needed Jesus to show up in our lives and change our situation. We remember that when we were on the precipice, when we were on the very edge and we felt like we were falling off or even after we'd fallen off and we hit rock bottom, whether that was financially, whether it was relationally, whether it was emotionally, whether it was spiritually, we found ourselves on the very edge or even off the cliff when we found ourselves in our most vulnerable place. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God drew near. God came to us and found us in our lowly estates. And he brought his power to us and did not exploit us, but gave us dignity and grace, significance and mercy and kindness and compassion. Gave him very self for us. We remember God's great generosity toward us that it might produce great generosity in us and through us.